Okay, so as I mentioned tonight, we are going to be in 2 Chronicles, wrapping up our journey in 2 Chronicles. And we left off, uh, we had Hezekiah, who was amazing, a couple weeks ago, and then we, or even last week, and then we rolled into Manasseh, but we didn't get him on Saturday, we got him uh, on Tuesday night, his son, who reigned a long time, was really bad, and then became really good, so it was a wonderful story. Then there was Amnon, and then we get Josiah, who is equal to Hezekiah, and Jehoshaphat is one of the three great kings in the southern tribe of Judah in that time from 931 B.C. to 586 B.C. So there was 20 kings in Judah. My mind's been flipped on this one. I've been saying there's 20 in the northern kingdom, 19 in Judah. It's actually the opposite, so I want to correct myself. There's 20 kings in Judah, and there was 19 kings in the northern kingdom, 39 total. The number total is correct. But as we come to coming forward from Hezekiah and to Josiah, Josiah was just amazing. And back when we did 2 Kings, we looked at his life in detail. And so tonight what I want to do is look at a key person connected to Josiah and also connected to the subsequent kings to come after him. So Josiah is the last really good king for the kingdom of the southern kingdom of Judah. He died at 39 in battle there against uh, the Pharaoh there in, in Israel, there by the Valley of Megiddo, actually. And then after he died around uh, 607 B.C., there were four kings that followed him in succession. Some only reigned a couple months. The other two reigned 11 years. Of those four kings, they were all bad. And we don't only just, we don't only just get them in Second Chronicles. We also get them in the book of Jeremiah. So the guy we're going to look at tonight is actually Jeremiah because he's linked to Josiah, the last great king, and then he's linked to all these other kings and really a future generation. And so tonight we're going to kind of take a step back from the kings. We're going to look at one of the prophets or the prophet that God gave not just the kings but the people at a critical time. During his time as a prophet, they lost all their freedoms lost all their wealth, and went into captivity in increments. And it's been said his ministry began around 530, excuse me, 630 B.C., and it ended around 580 B.C., so about a 50-year run there. And he saw, it was just a bad, it was a difficult time to be alive. But during that time, God used Jeremiah in a profound way to speak to the people, to the, to the rulers, to the people, it was amazing. His ministry is amazing. And so in case I step into eternity before we get to Jeremiah verse by verse, tonight we're going to look at Jeremiah from Second Chronicles. So we'll start with verse 25, chapter 35. This is where he's introduced to us. The context is Josiah had just died in battle fighting the Egyptians. And the judgment on the southern kingdom cannot begin as long as Josiah is alive. That's what the Lord had spoken previously. So his death puts in motion the chastening from centuries and centuries of unfaithfulness by Israel from the Lord. But it says in verse 25, Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. Now, Jeremiah, that's just how he's introduced to us here in this book. It's, okay, random fact. All Jerusalem is mourning, Judah and Jerusalem is mourning for Josiah. And then it says, Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. Then in chapter 36, when it begins with these kings, Jehoahaz, and then Elikim, whose name was changed to Jehoiakim. And then he was followed by Jehoiakim, who had a very brief reign, who was then followed by Zedekiah. 
there when it's talking about Zedekiah in verse uh, 12, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. So, so far, Jeremiah is associated with the lament for the death of Josiah, and now he's associated with holding Zedekiah accountable for the word of the Lord that God had for that last king, because Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. Then later on in chapter 36, we read in verse 21 that everyone's been taken away, the temple's been burned, the gates are burned. It's just the worst scenario imaginable for the people of God. But then it says in verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, a little back onto that. Before they went to the promised land around 1500 BC, God had given them in the law of God that every six years the land had a break. So they didn't do crops in the seventh year. The land had a, a Sabbath. And God said he'd give them extra crops the previous year to get them through that year, that he'd give them abundance beforehand and whatnot. So that principle how God uses the number seven in so many ways, every seventh year the land was supposed to have rest. The Jews never did it. And so God held them accountable for not keeping that, and their captivity was matched up with the amount of years that they did not keep the Sabbath. So 490 years is how God held them accountable for that, seven times 70. So that's the 70 years they're going to be in captivity in Babylon. And then again, he pops up in verse 22 where it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, remember the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, said he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all his people? May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, if you come out on Tuesday night, this is the setup for Tuesday night. And the back part of this chapter is how Ezra begins sort of a replay of this. Like when you watch an episode of something, it ends. And then the next episode has like a re refresher for like 30, 45 second refresher. That's how Ezra begins with this refresher, how it happened. So you see, Jeremiah comes out of nowhere here in the back of this book, and he's connected to the kings, the last good king, the last king who was a terrible king, and the people in captivity, the people in captivity who disappeared and went away under the last king, but who were promised a return and a brighter future, which we'll get to. Now, Jeremiah is an interesting guy. That's our context tonight to the text with Jeremiah. And there in the book of Jeremiah, when he's introduced to us, we now know contextually, historically, that his life ran parallel to Josiah and these kings. This was the time that God put him on planet Earth. It's like Paul said and the Athenians on Mars Hill. God's predetermined our times and seasons, our boundaries, and where we live and what it was all about. So Jeremiah had no choice in this. This is when he was born. This is what God decreed when he would live and his purposes his dad was a priest, but he was called to be a prophet. I'm going to read to you the first few verses about Jeremiah chapter 1 so we can get a better look at our guy, Jeremiah, tonight. You're welcome to turn there if you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. In introducing Jeremiah to us in relation to this text tonight, we look at his life and how he came on the scene, and we read this. 
The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest, who were in Anath in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So see, there's a historical record, even in his book, showing us his timeline, that his life ran parallel to these events that happened in Judah. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, or set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So he was a prophet to Israel, but he did prophesy to the nations as well. Then Jeremiah said in verse 6, Oh, Lord, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. That's how his ministry began. And if you look at his ministry by like modern standards, where people are like, oh, he's a super successful pastor. She's a super successful, you know, prophetess and speaker, you know, all this kind of stuff. However you measure success in ministry, human beings tend to measure success by numbers, whether it's numbers of people or numbers of money or charisma or those types of things. Jeremiah doesn't really fit. He doesn't really meet any success criteria that we would look at and say, wow, what a successful ministry. For example... I was hanging out with Jonathan Laurie last week on the beach, Greg Laurie's son. And I was saying, we just love you. We love your family. We love your dad. We love everything, the legacy of your household. The movie was great, Jesus Revolution. And, you know, Greg Laurie, we would all say, like, oh, he's amazing. He's great by any standard because he's been a man of godliness and character for 50 years. The ministry in Riverside here in Orange County, the Harvest Crusades, the Harvest Crusades have gone on for over 30 years now. In any field of employment or business, that is successful. It's hard for restaurants to make it three years, let alone 30. It's hard for clothing companies to make it three years, let alone 30. So you say, oh, Greg Lloyd's, you know, is amazing. And, you know, he, he did the service for Trump during COVID, the Easter service, and Phil Wickham led worship. Like, we say it's amazing. But for every Greg Lloyd, there, there's someone like Karen or Court just out there sharing the gospel with people off the grid, off the radar, that no one even understands what they're doing, what they're going through for the gospel. Jeremiah's like that. He didn't have all the fanfare. He doesn't get all the accolades like a Hezekiah or even a Josiah. In fact, he never really had a big following, and he was in heartache and sorrow most of his life at any given juncture. He suffered persecution. He was imprisoned for his faith. He was thrown in the mire. He had bouts of great depression. You write a book like, oh, Solomon gave us wisdom. Wow, yeah. David gave us worship. Yeah, the Psalms. What did Jeremiah give us? Lamentations. Five chapters of sobbing. That just, it's hard to read. I mean, some of Solomon might be tricky, but at least they're in love and they're chasing each other around the living room, you know? Lamentations, it's like, gosh, this is just the worst right here. It's just the worst. So, from that perspective, we just whenever we look at Jeremiah, we go like, wow, this guy. But he had over 50 chapters in the Bible. But I will say the book kind of goes like, mm. it's like, it's like trying to dance a song that it changes its rhythm all the time. Like it's just kind of eclectic. The book itself is, is difficult. 
and the flow and the cadence. Nonetheless, this is the great Jeremiah. He said, Lord, I'm too young. I, listen, I, I've seen the future. I don't, hey, I'll, I, don't, I don't, can I just be a farmer? Can I just do the vineyards over here outside the, this village? And the Lord's like, don't say I'm too young because we always have excuses. I'm going to use you and you're going to be faithful to me. And he was. So that's our Jeremiah. And in this text tonight, that's his timeline. This is who he is. That's his calling. This is his world. So in this text tonight, the first thing we see him associated with, it's Jeremiah laments for Josiah. Jeremiah laments for Josiah. And that's where we started tonight. We got his name there in verse 25, but now we're told he lamented for Josiah. His introduction to us in the historical book is associated with mourning or weeping, lamenting. Lamenting's a strong word. Lamenting's like when you're just like, ah, oh, like, oh, why did I make that business decision? Why did I ever go to that guy's house? Why did I get in the car with those people? Why did I shake hands with this person to do this? Why, how, did I, how did I end up in this situation? Lamenting is more like, it's not just like you're crying. It's like you're really lamenting, like you're wailing. I've shared this story before, but having spent so much time with my dad in recent years when he went from living on his own to independent living or then assisted living and now in memory care, I got all these great stories and spending time with him, visiting him. But one of the stories he told me was when he was in Guam. We lived in Guam in the early 60s. The Vietnam War was ramping up, and of course, he was with the Marine Corps. And my dad was a recruiter, and he was there in Guam recruiting Guamanians to serve with you know, the U.S. forces in Vietnam. And one of the things that happened to him is the first Guamanian that died in the Vietnam War, the first casualty, death casualty, KIA, in the, in the Vietnam War from Guam, my dad at the time, who was a major, had to go knock on the door, you've seen the movies, and knock on the door and tell the family that their son had been killed in action. I'm like, wow, Dad, what a story. I mean, it's Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Korea, all this stuff. But like, knock, like, you know, I'm in ministry. I go, Dad, how did you, like, you know, even his liberal Protestant background, Dad, how did you, how did you do that? And he said, well, you know, I just told them, and he said they just were straight-faced, the whole family. But he said when he walked away, you know, like they did the Marine thing, like just the way, you know, Semper Fi. But he said when he walked away and the door closed, he said there was a wailing he had never heard before or since in his life. He said the wailing, just everyone in the family just wailing, just absolutely wailing. And he said he can, he'll never forget it. Well, and he's in memory, Karen, he still remembers it. You know, like those things you remember to the very end when you don't even know what year it is. He still remembers it. That's the lamenting of Jeremiah. Josiah was such an awesome guy. What a great king. Became king at eight, age of eight. At 16, he said, I'm going to serve the Lord. You know, so high school football, junior varsity team, and I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to the Christian club. I'm all in. That's who he was. When he's got his driver's license, he's like, I'm with Jesus. He was serious with the Lord at 16, which is very good, obviously. Then uh, a few years later, at 25, he went out and he tore down all the altars of the false gods. So right about the time you get your master's degree, he said, this has got to go. This is all evil, and this is hindering God's blessing on this, our people. This has to go. And it's like, lead follower, get out of the way. So he tore down everything. He wasn't messing around. Then he refurbished the temple, 
Then they found the Old Testament law of Moses. He raised like, oh man, we're under, we're, we're under doom, man. Like we have disobeyed the Lord and the wrath of God's upon us. And he took it reverently and seriously. He made a covenant with the Lord just like Hezekiah did about 60 plus years before. And he just went for it. And he had the Passover. And unlike Hezekiah's Passover that we talked about was like a free-for-all, his Passover was orderly. Like he did it exactly right. And it was dialed in, it was tuned in, it was awesome by the Lord. So Josiah, Josiah was reverent. He only lived 39 years. And Josiah was reverent with the things of God. He took them seriously. I'm sure he had laughter in his life. But he lived in a serious time and took it seriously. And everything he did brought the blessing of God upon the people of God in the land of God who were under a covenant with God. So when he died... Jeremiah lamented. Jeremiah is a prophet, and he can see the blessing on the people, the restraint of evil, the restraint of judgment. Plus, he probably knew, though we don't know for sure, that God had told Josiah through the prophet Hilda, the prophetess Hilda, she said, because you've mourned and humbled yourself and rented your garments when you read the book of the law, you will not see this in your lifetime, but this will all happen after you're gone. So Jeremiah could have been like, hey, he's gone And here comes the Babylonians. This is about to get serious around here. We don't know that, but it's possible. Either way, he knew that Josiah's step in eternity left a massive void for the people of God in time, space, and matter. And he lamented. Which really brings, it's a great sorrow, and it's a a a lamenting of loss for great godly leadership. You older people, we've all lost loved ones. We've lost people we look up to. There are certain people that politicians, political leaders, spiritual leaders, that when they step into eternity, they leave a, a huge mark. Of course, when FDR died before the end of World War II, there's all those famous photos of his, uh, you know, the motorcade of his body going, you know, to the Capitol building and all the people crying and sobbing in the streets. Most people that live that day are now in eternity, but it's a very famous thing. When Billy Graham died, I cried. I'm sure some of you probably did. It was this, you know, Billy Graham's irreplaceable. There's never been anyone like him before, and there's never been anyone like him since. Who he was to our presidents, who he was to a generation, the nuclear generation, post-World War II generation. I remember, I cried. When Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, died, boy, did people lament. People still lament. I lament sometimes. During COVID, you know this, during the COVID stuff, I'm like, Oh my goodness, what in the world? This is crazy. These people, what are they doing? And I, I, I'd cry. I was like, gosh, Lord, I wish Chuck was still here. I wish we could just go to 3800 South Fairview Avenue and he'd tell us what to do. And the Lord just told me, well, he's not, and I'm here and I'll tell you what to do. Just read my word and apply my word to every situation. No matter what the government's tell you to do, you measure it by my word and you be true to my word. And it guided us, right? We got through it. But I'm telling you, multiple times when we're exasperated with things we've never seen and nor any other generation seen like we saw, particularly for the church and attacks against the church by human governments set up to defend the freedoms of speech and the church and religion. I cried many times thinking, gosh, Lord, I know I've already said this before, but I wish Pastor Chuck was here. I wish I could just go to some gathering with 5,000 people sitting on the floor outdoors listening to everybody he has to say about what is the right decision to make right now. Because the Calvary movement was so splintered and divided over what to do and how to handle the situation, and it was divisive. 
in most churches, if not all churches, well, it wasn't divisive here, praise the Lord. But it was for a lot of people. It's like, but we, the Lord said, you stick to the word, but lamented, cried. There are certain people in your life who are gone that if I say their name under a certain circumstance, you will cry immediately. Now, I can lament like my son that we lost, so there's times when I just have no control over sobbing, talking about our first child that we lost in childbirth. Okay, so that's just, it comes and goes. I have no control over it. People that have influenced you, your parents. My mom, she died right when COVID began, December 29th, 2019, three months before the craziness. I'm actually blessed that my mom didn't have to see all that stuff. She wouldn't have gone for it at all. But I had to grieve for my mom when we were, I was trying to figure out what to do with church services, with all these things. And I had to grieve. And there was times during that first year of 2020 when they're looting and burning everything and stuff, I was like, I'd be trying to wrap my mind around what's going on socially, going, this is just... And then I'd think of like my mom and I'd just start sobbing. Somehow my, the void of my mom not being there was the flashpoint where I would just sob. Like not just crying, but like, you know, like, <laughs> like that kind of crying, lamenting. In writing my book, Chris O'Rourke, the great pro surfer of California before my time, way better than me and one year older than me. Everything that my career would have been was he would have had. I still, I've, I've read my book multiple, multiple times. It's with, other, it's with other editors right now. I was talking about Chris O'Rourke the other day with uh, my good friend Aaron Chang, and I, I immediately want to cry when I'm talking about Chris O'Rourke because his impact on me, sharing the gospel with me when he was dying, was so powerful that when he stepped into eternity, he just felt like such a void. God sent this person to share the gospel with me. Then he died, and he was my hero and my rival, and he's gone. And now, 40 years later, I lived the dream, and he stepped into eternity at 22 and left behind a newborn who I saw at my induction at the San Diego Surfing Hall of Fame. You know what I did when I saw Tim O'Rourke? I cried immediately. I could cry right now. As soon as he said, I'm Tim O'Rourke, he looked just like his dad. He looks just like his dad. I'm like, man, I said, listen, you need me for anything, you can find me at Worship Generation. Because you get older, you want to do stuff like that. For people that have blessed you, you want to, they may be gone. It's, you saw this with David with Bazzarelli. He said, I can't bless you. But Bazzarelli said, you can't bless me, but bless my kid. And David said, bring him on over. He'll be part of my, my kingdom. I can't bless Chris O'Rourke, but his son's alive, and I can try and bless him. Timothy O'Rourke. And I got a Timmy, right? I mean, it seems like I got a Timmy brand. There's Timmy O'Rourke. I got to raise my Timmy and go to his Little League games and go to high school varsity football and go to his wedding. Chris O'Rourke was dying and told me I'll never see my son grow up on a flight when we were in that divine appointment on the plane. He said, I'm dying, and I won't get to see my son grow up. And you need Jesus. I'm ready to die. You're not. I've been humbled. Look at me. You're prideful. Look at you. Lamenting. Lamenting. I was so mourning when Chris O'Rourke died, I won the Stubbies event at Lower Trestles in rights only. Let me explain something to you. Me going right, I'm not even, world, I'm not even a world-class surfer on my backside. Never was. Somehow I won that contest where my weakness in the sport was against surfers that were much better than me. 
I just had so much passion, I was lamenting. And so let me just say this to you. Grieving and lamenting is a part of life, Body of Christ, WG. And it's okay to cry, and it's okay to lament. When people that you admire, that you esteem, that you love, whether they're your heroes in the world, or whether they're your family and friends, or relatives, your parents, or your uncles, and people whose lives, are, there are lives that are worth lamenting. Yes, and amen. There are people that you should lament when they step into eternity. Heaven's gain is earth's loss. So we need to reach new people with the gospel so they can bear good fruit and replace that. But just thinking that Jeremiah is introduced to us, Jeremiah also lamented. <laughs> there's a time to dance and there's a time to lament. Jesus, we're told by the prophet Isaiah, was a man of sorrows. Jesus came upon Lazarus tomb and it, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus said, come to me all you who are heavy laden and, and burdened and, and cast your yoke upon me for my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many times did Jesus show up on a scene where people are weeping and lamenting? Jairus' daughter, all the professional mourners outside the house, Jairus bereaving his 12-year-old, his only child's death, his 12-year-old daughter, and, and Jesus, what does it say? What, did, what does it say about Jesus when we went to uh, Jairus' house? It says he wept. So I just want to, it's a good text to remind us, there are things worth weeping over. And when Josiah steps into eternity, that's worth weeping over. And it's okay to grieve. And it's okay, it's even okay to grieve for family members that were maybe not that good. But you still love them because Jesus loved them and died for them whether they accepted it or not. Even in Ecclesiastes, Solomon said there's a time to weep and there's a time to, to not weep. There's a, time to, there's a time to dance and there's a time to mourn. He contrasted those things. This is the word of God. And this is the way it was for this generation. And this is the prophet in this generation. And he lamented. So I just remind us, it's okay to cry. And it's okay to express sorrow. And because that's part of the human experience, because God gave us emotion. We're spirit, mind, and body. And within that, we have emotion. God shows emotion, and he gave us emotion. And we don't want our emotions to rule over us, but they are a part of us. We're not robots. We're human beings created in the image and glory of God, and we, we experience emotions. So seeing that Jeremiah is introduced to us at the death of Josiah, that's a good reason to weep. Some people weep because the money they stole got stolen from them. Some, you know what I'm saying? Some people weep because they're serving life in, a, in prison because they killed someone, and they're not weeping because they killed them. They're weeping because they lost their freedoms. Like, this is good mourning. The mourning that you have for the sense of loss in the human experience. There's no way around it. With sin and death in the world and the grave and the devil, there's going to be times that we have great sorrow. And the longer you live, the more you're guaranteed of it. And it's okay. But we can't live in a season of sorrow. We can't stay in a season of sorrow. See, in ministry, I've seen people who have sorrow and they never recover from it. And they choose to just check out in life. You have to go forward. When Brian Jameson, our dear friend down the road who was my associate for five years, when Trinity Jameson died at the age of 10 of that brain tumor and how her, her physical appearance was disfigured from the tumor, it was just so, it was the worst. And they mourned. Nine months after she died at, at Jake and Leah's wedding, when, our old, you know, when Leah got married, the first of our kids got married, we were at John Randall's church 
at that historical building in San Juan Capistrano. And everyone's dancing, have a wonderful time. And I looked over and I saw Brian and Heidi, they're there serving the wedding, they're there to clean up. And I was like, it's just not their season to dance, you know? And I said, Brian, I feel bad. And he goes, don't, get back out there in the dance train, you know, like go dance with Raul Diaz again or something, you know, go have fun. It's a joyful night for you, but they were in mourning. But you know, they've gone forward from that. That was almost a decade ago. In fact, it was a decade ago. And all the fruit and all the things that God's done in his life and all of his other girls, have, they're grown up and they're adults now. He's like, wow. But there is a time to mourn and then there's a time to dance. And we've got to always keep going forward. It's good to recognize the season of mourning and let it unfold and let it be part of your human experience and let the God of all comfort comfort you in that season. But you can't stop living in that season. People that lose children... Almost all people who lose children get divorced. The statistics are profound. And I told you when we lost our son, the nurse told my wife before she even delivered our son that almost everyone gets divorced when they lose a child. You have to purpose it. That doesn't define you. You have to purpose that your grief does not define who you are with the living God and what your life's going to become. Everyone has testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy. That's life. And the more you live, the more you get them. So you embrace those things when they come in your life. And then you move on and go forward. Now, the second thing we see about Jeremiah is where it says he stood before Zedekiah. So he reproved Zedekiah. It says that Zedekiah was 21 when he became king. He reigned 11 years. He was, everything was evil. And what he was called by God to do before Jeremiah was to humble himself. Now, here's what really has layers with Jeremiah and Zedekiah. Okay, so in the book of Jeremiah, there's a two-chapter stretch from like chapter 21, 22, where we're told in detail, your homework assignment if you want extra credit, in detail, the conversations between Jeremiah and each of the four kings in this chapter. Isn't that fascinating? We're not limited to Second Chronicles, a historical record. We actually read what went on between Jeremiah and each of these four loser kings Oh, they say evil kings. It's recorded for us, like chapter 21, 22. But with Zedekiah, it goes way deeper in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, later on in the book of Jeremiah, there's a sequence of events where Jeremiah gets thrown into the jail and all these things are happening. And there's a false prophet that works with Zedekiah and he's afflicting Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's like, why was I even born? He's being persecuted. He's being ridiculed. He's lost his freedoms. He's watching the demise of everything. He's telling the people, God has brought judgment. If you trust in the Lord, commit yourself, cross over to the Babylonians. You'll be safe. God will bless you. He'll keep you. If you continue to fight against the Lord, you'll die by the famine, the pestilence, and the sword. And that's exactly what happened. And Zedekiah had his false prophet saying, that's not true. Jeremiah's a liar. Our God's on our side. Isn't it funny when people live against God and they try and say that God's on their side? Isn't it always interesting when people's lives are completely opposed to the word of God, but somehow they think God is on their side and they attack people who are serving the Lord, whose lives do match up with the word of God? It's crazy how that happens. Don't be surprised when it does because it happens quite often. Evil people go to church too. Wicked people believe in God too. And they... It's just the way it is. It's human history. In the book of Jeremiah, we're told three different times that Jeremiah was called before the king, Zedekiah, 
and had like interviews with the king. And the king's like, what's going on? Tell me now, tell me. And they had these dialogues, almost like John the Baptist with Herod the Tetrarch when he was in prison there during the time of Jesus. Or like Paul with, you know, Agrippa and those guys as well when he was imprisoned. He, he spoke the truth to the most powerful man in his world in his orbit, and that man never received it. Now we know Zedekiah, before, right when the Babylonians got him, he broke out with the men. They tried to escape by night. They tracked him down, killed his sons in front of his eyes, poked out his eyes. Zedekiah had a horrible ending. He never heeded what Jeremiah had to say. But it's really not about Zedekiah. It's about Jeremiah, right? See, that self-determination of what we choose to do with the Lord is up to us. Last night I was at dinner with Devin and Patty, Jennifer and I, and we had a, a waiter who said, I'm just stressed about everything, and then, oh, my parents died when they were in their 40s, and I'm stressed about that, my relatives, it's not me, it's the it's relatives. And I'm like, you choose, I didn't say it, but I was like, you choose to be stressed. You choose to put their anxiety on you. That's your choice. That's not the Lord. I wanted to say a lot more. I want to say, you know what? Your work, the boss had come by and said hi to us. Like, you, you're living for his dream. You're pouring water for that man's dream. You don't even have a dream. And you're blaming it all on all these people and all these things you have no control over. You should look in the mirror and say, I accept responsibility for me. I'm going to look up to the Lord and get on with my life. But his whole problem in life was all these other things he had no control over. You can do that with the Lord. Jeremiah could have done that. Whatever valley or pit or mire we ever into, ever enter into, let us never curse the Lord and let us never do anything other than accept responsibility for ourselves and our self-determination to live by faith, to humble ourselves, to live by faith, to love unconditionally and serve others. It doesn't matter if you're pouring water in a restaurant or running a corporation that's worth billions of dollars. It, no matter how low you might be in the world's eyes or how high, if you humble yourself before the Lord, if you love unconditionally and you serve others, you will be fruitful and your life will prosper no matter if Zedekiah is the king, Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, or Elikim who had his name changed. It doesn't matter. You will prosper. Jeremiah prospered. He was courageous and he prospered. See, in the dialogue in the book of Jeremiah that goes on, it'd be like, it'd be so easy to surrender your position. We all know what it's like to be bullied. Can you imagine how much Zedekiah and the false prophets bullied Jeremiah? Just change your tune. Just get in line with society, the science. Just get in line and do what we all say to do. That we're all in agreement except you. You're reckoning for everybody. Just, you know, like that kind of stuff. He was courageous. He, his convictions were so strong in his faith and what he believed and who he believed in. Like Paul said, I know who I believed in and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. He was uncompromising in his conviction with the Lord and the truth of God's word. And he wasn't going to surrender anybody. Throw him in the mire. He was scared for his life. He begged for his life. But he wasn't going to exchange his life for compromise of his conviction and the character of who he was with the Lord or his calling. And God did spare him. He was a man of courage. We often think of courage like David running after Goliath or something, or Samson, you know, fighting the, the lion and things like that. But really, courage is, for us, it's always been standing for the truth, isn't it? 
No one gets assailed more than the woman or the man who stands for truth. The truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, and absolute truth in this universe. What is truth? But the beauty of standing for the truth is you never get confused. And God always honors the truth. And it never changes. Let God be true, and every man a liar. The truth is always the truth. Jeremiah stood for the truth. And he endured it. Before Zedekiah, Jeremiah didn't need to humble himself. He was already humbled. It was Zedekiah who fought the truth and fought the Lord that had to humble himself. And Jeremiah would have been bullied and pressured to capitulate his position, his character, his person, and his faith in that situation. And he refused to. And it's a great testimony to us. Like, just because the whole world's going nuts doesn't mean we have to. Paul said in the end of his life, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. And who knows how each one of us will end our journey, but we can be sure we want to be found courageously in our faith, looking unto Jesus, the author, and finish our faith, and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we transcend dimensions and we're going to glory. He didn't have a particularly joyful life. He had a lot of hardship and heartache his entire life. And he never really saw the glorious day in his own timeline. He saw it for a future generation, but he didn't see it in his I told you a few years back I was Googling stuff and I saw that the worst time, according to like statistics, the worst time and the worst place to live and the worst person to be was a male in Russia from 1890 to 1980. It's the worst time to be alive. If you were a Russian male between 1890, the end of the Romanovs, before the Russian Revolution, then Stalin, communism, all that stuff, it's like the worst time statistically for the death rate, loss of freedoms, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's kind of like Jeremiah. It's a good reason he was crying when Josiah died. Because that was the end of the good things and the beginning of really bad things. But even in the bad things, he did not surrender his faith. And he was courageous. And that's a good reminder to us, no matter what we face, to hold fast to the truth. To stay firm in our convictions. To know that we never stand alone. To know that faithfulness is always a premium with the Lord. To know that our faith in the Lord will never be let down. Jesus said, I'm with you, lo, always, even until the end of the age. He promised Joshua in the Old Testament, I'll leave, never leave you nor forsake you. And the book of Hebrews will reaffirm that in the New Testament promise. You may not feel like the Lord's with you when you're really going through it, but he will always be with you. His presence will always be with his people, no matter what the situation. You'd like to have him show up in the fire like he did for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? And believe me, he did in Babylon show up in that fire because he's supernatural and he's over all dimensions and he did show up in that fire and they did not smell like a barbecue or a beach fire in Huntington in August that's the way it went down but even if he doesn't show up for you we need to be like those guys and say look our God is able to deliver us from you but just know this we will never ever bow down to you and sing your song that's how we want to be that's how Jeremiah was before Zedekiah. And then the last thing we see about Jeremiah, this is awesome, and this is particularly applicable to all the young people here tonight. So young people, I want to tell you right now, you have a future and a hope, always. There's always a future and a hope for the young people. There's a future and a hope for the older people, but it's really important that younger people, particularly millennials and Z, Z generation, they understand there's a future and a hope for you. God forbid you listen to a bunch of crusty baby boomers or Gen Xers saying, it's over! Don't just take those thoughts captive. I'm a baby boomer, and the more I hang out with them, uh, the ones that get it, get it, the ones that don't, they don't. 
It's like any other generation. You need faith for your generation, and Jeremiah, and I need faith for your generation. All the statistics say, like, oh, it's like, you know, there's less money. The baby boomers had all the money. They're dying. The money's just being stolen or redistributed or seized and all that stuff. Listen, there's nothing new under the sun. And Jeremiah prophesied to the captives. So he lamented the death of Josiah. He stayed courageous and strong with all the dialogues with Zedekiah, who met his end. And then Jerusalem's burned. The temple's destroyed. The wall's destroyed. And everyone goes away. The third wave of captives is gone. And there's Jeremiah in the land like, wow, what just happened? But he was led by the Lord to write Jeremiah 29.11, which, of course, is a pretty famous verse for all of us. And Jeremiah 20.11 goes like this. So they're in the captivity. So you young people, you're taken away to distant land. They took the best of the young people, which is what totalitarian authoritarian governments do, right? Don't they always take the young people? And re-educate them to think like they think as totalitarian authoritarians. It's human history. So they took the best like Daniel, Meshach, Jack and Abednego. Esther was there in the next generation. But it says this. So Jeremiah wrote them. He said, look, because there was false prophets in Babylon saying, oh, you're going to be released. You're going to go back home. Everything's going to get better. You know, unicorns, rainbows, and happy pugs in the field chasing butterflies. And Jeremiah's like, no, nah, that's... That's, that's not the way it is. You're, no, one's leave, no one's leaving Babylon in this generation. But he had an encouraging word in that. He said this, build houses and dwell on them. This is verse uh, 5. Build houses and dwell on them, chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters. You know what he's saying? Enjoy the journey. Bloom where you're planted. Live in peace, peace and unity. Live the human experience. Love your wife, love your husband. Have children, have wedding days. Have nagila, have you know, like live the dream. Live it in Babylon. And you may not be able to, see environment doesn't have to determine our attitude and perspective. The heart of faith determines our attitude and perspective on the environment. People so often let environment define their attitude and their perspective but if you're full of faith and you have, you know, you're positive about things, optimistic, you're encouraging, you smile and you're friendly, you project your environment. You can be the happiest person in Babylon if you choose to be. If you've got the right perspective on who's on the throne, you can wake up in Babylon and you're friendly to everybody. Uncle Mordecai and even Haman. You just, man, a spirit-filled woman in Babylon, ah, that's beautiful. Babylonians need to see that. A spirit-filled man amongst the Chaldeans, that's great. Go to the palace and show them what it looks like. When you serve the living God, like Daniel does and did. It's all a matter of perspective and how you frame it. Faith frames things with optimism and confidence because of who God is, what he's done, where he's at, and what he's going to do, and what he's promised. He said, you know, live your life. Get a good job. Work hard. Show up early. Have a good attitude. Daniel became like the most powerful man in Babylon, basically, a couple of times. Esther saved her people. She won the beauty contest, and that's that with the Medo-Persians. God said, this is punishment from what a previous generation did. It's what they did, not you. Kind of like the current generations of millennials and Zs. But God's saying, don't, don't let that define you. You define you and what, how you choose to live and what kind of faith you have and where you put it in me, the living God. 
I caused this to happen, but I'm going to bring something good from this. Then he said in verse 10 of chapter 29, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Anyone under 40, listen to me very carefully. Anytime anyone wants to take away your future and your hope, you need to remember this passage. No matter what government does, your bosses, your peer group, or anything else, don't let anyone, of course you older people, same thing, because we've still got to face the grave. Don't let anyone or anything take away your future and your hope. Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians, take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Everything that exalts itself against Christ and anything that takes away your future and your hope in Christ is that which needs to be taken captive to Christ, young and old alike, particularly young people. Don't drink the dumbing down Kool-Aid, millennials and Zs. Rise up and be great in your generation. There's always room at the top in the kingdom for those who are willing to bow the knee to get there. God said to them, through Jeremiah, my thoughts for you are good thoughts of peace, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And body of Christ, WG, this is how we end this part of the journey. This, these are, this chapter is a tough chapter in Chronicles, they lost everything. But for the next generation, it would be restored. And so I close with this thought. This is how life is. Everything sequences and cycles, right? You learn that, right? It's all cycles. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat dies, it cannot bring forth a crop. Everything has sequences and seasons. That's how God set up his universe. In a universe with trillions of galaxies and billions of people, things move in seasons. And the end of one story is just the precedent to the beginning of a new story. And sooner or later, yes, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and he makes all things new. But until then, we need to realize that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter what happened yesterday or is even happening today, there's always a future and a hope in the Lord. Always a future and a hope. Always. Siempre. Yeah, always a future and a hope in the Lord. And don't guard that like your heart and your mind. Guard that. Don't let anyone or anything ever come in and take your future and your hope in the living God. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and promise his return to leave you bankrupt of a future and hope. And that's why we can be the most positive, optimistic people ever. Because we're saved by the blood, we're filled with the Spirit, and our destiny is glory.